Welcome to the Bored and Nerdy Podcast. I am your host, Corey Munoz, and as always, I am here with my brother and co-host, Christopher. Today we'll be discussing the HBO Max series, Raised by Wolves. Just a quick graphic content warning and controversial topics warning. Have an open mind coming into this show, uh, but it's definitely something that uh, you probably don't want to watch with your eight-year-old, <laughs> for sure. Going from there, I guess we also need to declare uh, that there will be spoilers. Uh, this show is pretty new. It's a 2020 release. I believe it just stopped airing recently, wasn't it in October? Yeah, it's brand new. Just finished up. Super spoiler warning, then. You've had a month to watch this show's finale, and we're going to talk about everything. We're going to start with episode one for you, which is free and available on YouTube. And we'll give you another warning once we pass beyond that free episode. But the whole podcast will be full of spoilers. And if you're interested in watching the whole thing, Remember, it is an HBO Max series. The show is actually created by uh, Aaron Guzikowski. The first two episodes are directed by Ridley Scott, and Ridley Scott was actually directly involved in the pre-production for this show. And Ridley Scott would do storyboards, because that's what he's famous for, is doing storyboards. In the show's aesthetic, you can definitely feel that little bit of uh, Ridley Scott like frosting on the science fiction. Uh, it feels like you could grab this show and plop it right into the Alien universe, and it would fit perfectly. They decided to set the show on a planet, Kepler-22b, which is a real planet. It's something, some hundred light years away from, from the planet of Earth. They chose a planet super far away from Earth so that they wouldn't have to worry about too much being discovered about the planet. In fact, it's highly likely we'll never discover anything about this planet because it's so far away. But they did want to pick a real place to give it kind of a real feeling. Which I thought was fascinating. I'm not a giant uh, space nerd like you are, where, you know, I think it's all interesting and I'll look into some things. But when I first watched the show, Kepler-22 was a reference that went right over my head until I went to... Google's uh, some facts about the show to write down names so that I said it correctly. And then Kepler 22 shows up and it's, you know, telling me that, oh yeah, Kepler 22 is the name of the sun-like star in the system. And Kepler 22b is a planet there, which is thought to be ocean-like, uh, you know, a water world. And it starts talking about all these things. And so I had this moment where it was, wow. I wonder what else in this show that they, you know, took from reality and warped. A lot of that can be attributed to Ridley Scott, uh, because as you said, he came in for the first two episodes as the director, because, you know, he's on record saying it, he wanted to set the tone for the whole show. And he, he did that very well. And what's interesting about the way that he made his actors behave is the amount of freedom he gave them in doing it because we had a very unique introduction to our characters, which is really a great segue into the first episode where it literally begins with what can be described as the birth 
of two adult characters. You know, they, they start from the beginning with us because they are androids that aren't pre-existing entities in the world so far as they or the audience are aware that you jump into this fresh world with them and get to experience everything anew. So spoiler warning here. Now we're going to get into the uh, the first episode. So if you haven't seen the first episode on YouTube, I highly recommend checking it out. It's free. The rest of the show is on HBO Max. But the first episode, I feel, has legs enough to stand on as a piece of entertainment. You want some some sci-fi that you can sink your teeth into. There's an hour worth of the show on YouTube. It's It's definitely... There's enough there that's compelling enough that you'll enjoy the hour. So with that aside, we're going to get into talking about the first episode here. And as Corey just mentioned, it starts out with uh, the, these two Android characters coming online. I just want to right out of the gate say that Father is my favorite character. I absolutely love the character of Father. I rewatched the first episode recently. Right out of the gate, like right off the bat, like they're in like mortal danger and they're androids. So they're really melodramatic and they're just kind of robotically and methodically responding to this situation of terror. And he's cracking a joke because it's evidently right off the bat. They wanted to open with in his programming. It's in his programming to tell dad jokes. Oh, my God. I I loved it. Oh, smile on my face every time he tells one of those crappy jokes. I have to agree. Father is also my favorite, and I'm surprised that I can say that with such confidence, because by the end of the first episode, I was convinced that uh, another character, Marcus, was going to be my favorite, because he is played by um, Travis Fimmel, Fimmel um, the actor of Ragnar Lothbrok in the Vikings show, which is a show that I really enjoyed. And so as soon as I saw him, I, I literally shouted out, Ragnar! <laughs> and I got really excited. But you're exactly right about Father. From the very beginning, for a guy that's supposed to have like zero charisma as you know some android, Father crushed it. He stole scenes throughout the whole thing. Um, he was fantastic. Just talking about the first episode alone, the first episode covers so much ground. And uh, yeah, we're introduced to Marcus like right at the end of the first episode, right? Correct. I, I definitely jumped ahead a little bit. But there's just so much ground that's covered in this first episode that I feel like you could you could pluck the first episode, tack an hour long uh, bit onto it with like a resolution at the end, and it could be a theatrical movie. Like Absolutely. It, it, it has the feeling that it would work. I think that the first episode was season one of this show. I, I, if I agree. If you were to spend more time in it, you could have had an entire season just in episode one. So it's like this prologue and pilot episode and first season that has the beginning, middle, and end that is dramatic, that is compelling, that's amazing. And so after the first episode, I was really confused what I was going to be getting from the rest of the show. I, I totally agree. Uh, I watched it with my wife, Kayla, of course, 
And uh, we had the same feeling after finishing the first episode. It was like, where is it going to go from here? Like, where could it possibly go? And that's one thing that uh, I really enjoyed about the show. It's really hard to call where things are going to go. And the first episode really sets that tone up very, very well. Huge example of that. And I'm, I'm saying this because we've already covered our spoiler alert twice now is in the first episode, they kill off over half their cast and over 90 plus percent of potential cast. There's just a huge rollover of people. And it's like, oh, I guess I shouldn't get attached to any one thing. I'll just wait and see what's going on. And I had no idea what this show was about. I never watched any trailers for it, didn't read any press releases. I didn't know that the show existed until you told me, hey, you should watch the sci-fi show. I enjoy it. I'd like to talk about it on the podcast. And so I go and I put this show on and I'm expecting some like Star Trek level thing where it's like, okay, my brother wants me to watch some sci-fi. The last sci-fi thing he got me to watch was, oh, I don't know. Was it the Firefly movie Serenity? Probably. I think that's the last one he recommended. So it's going to be some, you know, cute campy show. And then all of a sudden people are blowing up like blood bags and <laughs> falling in giant holes in the middle of the earth and little kids are disappearing and uh, giant dinosaur sized steak skeletons. And it's like, okay, Chris's tastes have matured. <laughs> and that's definitely uh, Ridley Scott's touch there. And I think that's one thing to me that makes it feel like a real place, like a real planet is because there is that, that gritty side to the world, like frontiersman vibe where there it's these two androids and they're just here in this wilderness on this planet and they have to survive and like provide for this family. And, and right off the bat, the, the tone they set with her incubating the babies looking back it it seems kind of crazy like why did she do it so fast like why were, were they like okay we're here we're alive we're functional doing babies now it must have been in their programming because you would think that you'd want to first search for food sources for when the babies are born it was division of labor because while she was incubating the babies father was out building the settlement and looking around starting the crops and all of that okay so okay i think it was just division of duties she was programmed with create the children and care for them he was programmed with build their homestead and care for the children so he must have done some kind of foraging and like gathering but they just they didn't really show any of that because it fades away but they didn't show him like exploring the countryside or anything like that had his little montage yeah no i would have liked something like that injected in there but but like i mentioned so much of the first episode covers so much ground it, it it's cram-packed as it is so i get it the whole having the the babies scene was extremely well done i i've rewatched it several times and i still I, I get confused at what point is it physical props and at what point is it computer generated. It It's very well done. It's extremely well done. They definitely used a lot of practical effects. So I'd be curious on that specific scene as well, because seeing father holding these babies in his hand, you know, it just really kind of gives you that. Oh, and hmm, at the yeah. same time, how did 
you and your wife as parents of three feel about the show once a bunch of kids started dying you know it was natural illnesses we didn't understand it one of them disappeared yeah how did you guys feel watching that um to be perfectly honest uh i I really liked that the the first uh, episodes goes through so much. And basically, like you mentioned, all the kids are dead by the end of the first episode. Because at first, when the when Tally fell down the hole, uh, I was like, well, great. This is going to be a show that they're going to off a kid in every episode for 12 episodes. And because, you know, it opens with Campion's line about mother and father tried so hard to take care of us or whatever. And I'm the only one left. And so, you know, from the very first uh sequence of the movie that okay the kids are all gonna die uh, i was really glad that they didn't stretch it out for a whole show because i wasn't about watching a show that's just about kids dying on an alien planet so with that said it <laughs> of course it's horrifying to watch and and i was glad they showed it off can or didn't show it on camera i have to admit that uh it started to bother me around the like the last section of the episode when it was obvious the kids were sick they were all putting them in uh in blankets and they were coughing and they just didn't look well it was bothering me that the androids didn't have why didn't we ever see an autopsy performed on one of the kids that died you know what i mean like you think that as sophisticated caretaking androids they would have been more methodical about it taking one of them away to to disassemble this kid and figure out what killed it because it was obvious they were all suffering from the same thing. What what were your thoughts about uh, the way that the episode was just annihilating these these children? I went into this very unaware of what was going on, and I had a very biased view of it, trying to think of it from a show that you traditionally recommend. And so I wasn't ready for that. And I'm watching it with my wife and my daughter running around on the ground. You know, she's some 10-month-old kid that just learned to walk. And then here goes Tally walking off towards this giant hole. And I'm like, hmm, you're grounded. Come over here. No walking, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, um, I was wondering if Riley would watch any of it with you. That's awesome. She watched, I would say half of the show and and so she got to deal with the random wait what happened since the last time i watched like she watched the whole first episode with me and then i think i watched the next two alone then we watched some together and then i watched the ending without her but she agreed you know by the end of it it was like wow that was intense <laughs> and what i agree with you watching the kids you know be sick was frustrating because you really wanted there to be some sort of proactive solution happening and nothing was being done about it. It's like, oh, they're sick. Okay. Yeah, that seemed strange to me. And it makes made me wonder if maybe there was a scene that was cut or something, which could be because like I've mentioned twice already, there's the episode is cram-packed. Like it could be a movie. We're shown that the extra embryos that, that they packed along in a suitcase at some point, the kids got in there and messed with them because that's what obnoxious kids do. And so that's established pretty firmly that these kids that they got, that's what they got um, to maintain their their society. And so you really feel for the androids because you want them to succeed. And what's really interesting from a sci-fi uh, point of view on it is this is a very real situation that we're looking at. I mean, 
of course it's it's done for entertainment but it's a very real scenario it might not be feasible to send people to another planet fantastical visual representation of that concept that's a very well something it could be what's even more likely is our first uh journey to another planet will be a robot that goes there to build more robots all right so i guess this is where we give that official warning of we're going to start talking about the rest of the show that is not free on youtube so serious spoiler warning we're not going to hold anything back at this point i hope that you have watched the whole show because this show really thrives on its mysteries and to prove that we're going into full spoilers now one thing i worry about with the show overall as we finish the first season and we're getting into the or the second season's been greenlit is i hope fingers crossed it doesn't suffer from the mystery box itis of the uh, sequel trilogy and of lost uh where because it definitely has that mystery box feel where they like to set up a lot of questions but i wonder now that the first season has wrapped what questions we're going to get answers to i believe it was uh aaron kuzikowski that said he looks at the show as this haunted house that we get to explore we've only really been in this one section of it and you know we get to see the backyard soon we get to see this other room and so I would agree, I am worried about the lost situation happening. I'm worried about the show getting canceled early because when he pitched the show to HBO, he went in with a five to six season story arc mapped out. And so we're very much so in the beginning. We're greenlit for season two, took him about two years to do that, two years to do season one, we're greenlit for season two. And they're thinking eight episodes on that one, probably a little bit shorter than this current season. And if they keep that going, you know, you're talking a decade of funding being stable, of interest being stable. And with these mystery shows, (laughs) that's risky. (laughs) Yeah, no, I hate it when a TV show doesn't pay off because the ending gets canceled. Yeah, that's definitely something that I would worry about with this show, just because, uh, And I'm sure we'll get into it as we talk through the show here, but there's some serious threads that are left running after the season wraps. I would argue that most of those threads came up in the finale. All right, all right, all right. So so right off the bat, we talked a bit already about mother and father, because it is like they were born when the show started. They came online. they, They had kind of a naivety about them they were very robotic and throughout the first episode throughout the gen one of children we really see mother and father grow as beings which makes sense because if you've had a child around you know that you need to have a certain degree of empathy to even tolerate their bullcrap so it's really interesting to me to watch how those two actors portray these android characters through the show because they do grow and they don't emote the way a human would necessarily emote what it reminds me a lot of is uh people who have uh, emotional uh, uh social emotional disabilities and trying to fake it in situations like it it reminds me of that in the way that they portray their characters it was super fascinating i enjoyed a 
Zoom interview with the cast where they were asked what it was like having so many kids on set. And the actor for Father, Abu Bakr Salim, I probably pronounced that horrible, I apologize. Uh, but he was talking about it, and he said that it was wild because you would be trying to get yourself centered on this very deep, profound moment of, okay, how would my character act with this, and what would I take away from it? How would I feel after this? And he's describing how the uh, actor for um, Campion, Winta, how he would just be asking him, you know, silly things like, well, would you rather fight a zombie dragon or a real dragon? <laughs> then Abu would be like, oh, I can't think about that right now. You know, I'm trying to do this busy thing. And it's like the kids just change this atmosphere on set completely. And so a lot of the cast was really just uh, enchanted by it because it changed the, everything for them. That's really fascinating to hear, because one thing after watching the whole show that I didn't think about until I was rewatching the first episode and and was talking around the house about it, that all the child actors in this show, which is a good chunk of the cast, they all nail it. I can't think of a single moment through the whole show where one of the kids acting pulled me out of the show. So that's really amazing to to hear that they were just regular kids on set because it comes off very professional however they did it like you legitimately feel that these kids are uh, terrified but the older kids when you look at hunter yeah you look at him and you know he's got facial hair and you're thinking why maybe what 17 is probably what he's trying to portray yeah, and the actor is 16, so that was okay. pretty on point. But when I was looking at him in regards to the littlest kids in particular, yeah. it was, why was he in the same playroom as them? Like, when you see him in episode one, right. he is very <laughs> clearly bigger than these little children. But then the other characters, Holly, her actor's 20, and Tempest is 30. Okay, oh, wow. And... <laughs> That means that the actor for Tempest is older than Father and Sue. Interesting. Well, uh, they do a good job portraying the characters they're supposed to portray, I suppose. <laughs> right? It was just wild when I finally saw that. I don't know. Maybe he was there because he was getting, he was in trouble. Like he did something, and they're like, "Well, you're gonna have to supervise the Sunday school now for for that." Bad. <laughs> That's probably more in the uh, the Mithraic culture. Because when you look at how Paul expected his parents to act around him, it didn't really seem like a hands-on parenting community. And definitely, so it really definitely. wouldn't surprise me if the kids were just shoved in this lump of, you're not an adult yet. They didn't care about the, oh, you're elementary, oh, you're middle, oh, you're high school. They don't, they don't care about that. You're a child. Could be. And so that's kind of how I took it. Definitely. Yeah, I wonder what her criteria was. Like, you were just in this room, so you win. Whichever ones walked close enough to her because she was blindfolded. Right. <laughs> yeah, that uh, that whole sequence is definitely nuts. Where she goes up onto the uh, Mithraean mothership and, and you're like, what is she going to do? What What's going on? And that, I, I think, is when, uh, for me anyway, uh, Mother started to migrate into the villain seat. Because after the first episode, I definitely wanted Mother to fail. She came in there and she just like decimated the Mithraean ship. 
She crashes it on the planet. She hijacks some kids just because she feels like she should have kids. Like at that point, for me, mother changed into that crazy lady on the news who stole a baby. See, that happened for me sooner. As soon as she killed father 20 minutes into episode one, who was already my favorite character, I was like, I hate that woman. Man, they killed father a lot. Like father died a lot. Yeah. What did he die like? Two or three times? I think he died three times. He died twice. Oh, it was reprogrammed. reprogrammed, And then he tried to die again in the finale. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. No. uh, (laughs) Oh, father. (laughs) One thing that I really love about this show is that it's a constant carousel of characters. And it makes me wonder if when we're focused in on a group, and we're following a group, if narratively we're seeing a story that's warped to this group's perception, because there's a constant carousel of characters. As we go from one group to another, you feel like each character gets to take a turn in the hero seat and in the villain seat. Like now mother's the villain and and now Marcus is the villain and father's even the villain and uh, uh, Campion's the villain. They all all take a turn at at being uh, the antagonist. And, and likewise, they all take a turn at being the protagonist. And I think it's really fascinating because as a TV show, it, it really gives you uh, empathy for all the characters, which is really important when you're wanting to stretch it out for hours. And it's really important when a huge part of your show's premise is portraying the human condition. People themselves aren't completely good aren't completely bad and so you get this more realistic view of everybody when you realize just how deeply flawed these characters are even in what is supposed to be an atheist utopia which was the the goal of sending uh, the androids and the embryos to this planet now, I really wonder what happened to the original Campion, Campion Sturgis, the creator of the androids. What happened that made him go from being with the 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 Mithraic people to being with the atheist people? And like not only that, but building or rebuilding this weapon of mass destruction, necromancing robot murder machine into a caretaker. I think the only clue that we really got from him about his origin intentions was when he talked to Mother about the endless cycle of killing each other, where humanity could always be trusted to bring the past violences back again and how it was always this deconstruct, reconstruct, deconstruct, reconstruct cycle. Or he encountered something as weird as what we encounter on Kepler-22b. You mentioned earlier that at first you thought Marcus would be your favorite character. The way that Marcus is set up, the whole Mithraic troop has a very like space marine vibe to me. It has kind of a Warhammer thread through it th- to me. And and so he comes off as kind of the likable uh, space cowboy of the group of pretty straight-laced guys. And you find out later that, that that's because he's impersonating a soldier and he's really not one of their guys. And so that's why he comes off more likable than them. 
Which is just an interesting thing throughout the whole show, where from most of the narrative, the likable characters are set up to be atheists, and the straight-laced, hard-to-get-along-with are the Mithraic devout. And I agree, they definitely have a very Warhammer-esque space crusader piety about them. Yeah, I think it's really fascinating, too, that Marcus and Sue, who are they're impersonating uh, Mithraic people, but they're actually atheist soldiers. Uh, they're, they're impersonating these people, and they're on a trip to uh, Kepler-22b in some kind of suspended animation. But it's a suspended animation with shared memories, kind of like kind of like in Futurama where they go into the internet. It's like that, but they could all get together and and so they're all warned things are going to be a little weird in in this simulation. And so they kind of use that as a premise for how Marcus and Sue infiltrate the group and fake Paul out that they're his parents and and like you mentioned they're a little they're a little warmer than these other people would be. And so it it seems a little off, but they're like, "Eh, it, must just be the simulation. That whole aspect is really fascinating to me. Because that's basically that Paul got to spend 10 years as a kid. It was probably a weird, like, time-dilated 10 years. Basically, the whole time that uh, the first generation of kids for the androids are dying, Paul, Marcus, and Sue are all living in virtual reality land together. A huge part in this shows themes is parenting parenthood all of that and very early on we get a message from sue that she doesn't feel confident being a mother and we find out much later that it's because she had a really bad miscarriage and so she's got this mental block that she just can't see herself as a mother and being forced into that simulation with paul for those 10 years she's able to overcome it she's able to bond with him and it's really interesting to think about the time because when they first met paul he said why are you talking to me which told us their parents don't interact with their children in this culture okay we know that and so this 10 years that they're in simulation land marcus and sue had more opportunities to bond with Paul than his real parents did. Yeah, no, that's an interesting point. That whole simulation thing plays a pretty substantial role in the show, which is kind of surprising to me. You wouldn't have figured that when they first introduced it as a concept. They wanted their own Star Trek holodeck. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> it's the internet. It's the holodeck. Right off the bat, they set up Marcus as this likable character. The, they want you to like him, and they, I can't remember the guy's name, but there's some kind of uh, uh, elderly Mithraic leader. Eminence Ambrose. Ambrose. Basically, there's this argument about, do we go save the kids that the androids abducted or what? And that's a good, that's a substantial chunk of the story of the first season, actually. It's probably about half of the first season. The guy that straight up made people carry him on a palanquin <laughs> across a desert. <laughs> like, right. talk about pompous. Oh, it gave me serious Space Marine vibes, dude. Like, this whole, the, the whole thing. Like, that's so something that you would see in a Warhammer artwork or something. 
so they they establish pretty early on that you you want to side with Marcus and that you don't like this guy, and so then there's the big like switcheroo where where Marcus manages to to demonstrate to everybody that uh, he's unworthy by by basically burning him alive with this dodecahedron fire butthole in the middle of the desert. Like what? Like is that ever going to get explained? Which was improv skills Marcus didn't, <laughs> didn't know that it was going to do that it happened and he jumped on an opportunity actually just the character of Marcus in general he's good at that jumping on opportunities that's his whole shtick and I feel like we've gone long enough in this that we need to mention for those of you that are confused that have watched it Marcus is Caleb Caleb is Marcus <laughs> Caleb being his atheist name and, 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 and Marcus Sue's being other name Mary. Okay, Mary and Sue. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, they, she's literally, she's Mary Sue. <laughs> did they do that on purpose? They had to have done that on purpose. Like, that's an inside joke. Caleb is Marcus, but I call him Marcus because that's what they call him more in the show. Mary's really the only one that ever calls him Caleb, other than when uh, Mother calls them out on their transformation. Yeah, and they, they had like some kind of reconstructive surgery to make them look like these people they're impersonating and it's pretty uh in depth really. Yeah, they he he overthrows the the leader guy and he's like, I'm the new leader now and, and this guy, uh Lucius, uh, who's actually a really cool guard character, again, serious like Imperial Guard like space breed vibes. Um he uh backs up Marcus and is basically like, Yeah, this guy's it. This guy's He's the chosen one. Like we got to do what he says. But I think, it, yeah, it's right around the same time, like in that same sequence where uh, where Marcus becomes the leader, that he starts hearing this weird voice that's basically telling him what to do. You know, like burn things or don't burn things. It was exactly that scene. Yep, and that's why people jump to it because they were convinced that. Soul, the the god was talking to Marcus and had abandoned uh, Ambrose, and so that's why Justina, the other high-ranking cleric, was passed over. She even brought it up. The order of succession in uh, the hierarchy should have gone to her. And that's what I really love about this show, because at this point you've learned that Marcus is is impersonating somebody and, and that he's not really one of them. He's one of the atheists. And, and so then he becomes the leader of the, uh, of the Mithraic group. And, and you're just like, you're rooting for him at this point. Yeah. Marcus rules. You're going to do this guy. So it's just really interesting to me in the whole show. Like I love how every character really gets to take a turn in the protagonist seat. I enjoy a lot of the really subtle scenes throughout where you can see Marcus and Mary kind of trying to figure out what's really going on and how to behave as a Mithraic person and characters like Lucius help us there where he's asking questions about like, so you killed my father. How do you feel about killing my dad? And Marcus just kind of plays the dumb card of, Oh yep, yep, yep. That's exactly how I felt about everything. And Oh, Nope, nothing else to this story. Yep. You're right. And the weird part about that whole origin story for Lucius is he's bonding with the guy that killed his dad on a level of he replaces his father with Marcus. He really latches on hard until the very end when he turns on him because Soul turned on Marcus. And so you have this just really strange 
family loyalty in the Mithraic people. Uh, and Ambrose, when he quotes the Mithraic lullaby to her, and she calls it scripture, and then Lucius steps in to say, hey, yeah, every kid knows that lullaby. And so that really just makes me wonder, did Marcus and Sue, you know, our Caleb and Mary characters, actually spend their time wisely in this 10-year simulation? I think they just played with Paul the whole time and had their happily ever <laughs> after because they didn't even know, like, basic things about their person. They didn't even know basic things about the faith, you know, this lullaby. Yeah, like, did they do all their research completely? Like, you guys didn't read the material. Am I the only one who read the material? That's what the dossier is for. <laughs> <laughs> No, that's a fair point for sure, because uh, their their disguise is very thinly hidden, and that's why I really expected them to branch off from the rest of the character groups and go off and do their own thing, because they they established really early on and that uh, their disguise is very thin. They're not very good at faking. Which is weird that they had perfect physical disguises and 10 years to practice before right. they have to encounter anybody. You'd think those would be really good disguises, but as soon as they get out of this hibernation, they are still paranoid that they're going to get caught. One thing that's really interesting is that they chose to make this about the, the cult of Mithras. They decided to make that like one of the dominant factions in this show. Mithraeans in, in real life, in real history, could be thought of kind of like how the uh, the Freemasons have this reputation as being this cult or this elite group of people with inner workings and dealings in the in the behind the scenes of the day to day. It, it was a very similar thing, except for set it in like ancient Rome instead. The Mithraeans, uh, the Mithraic cult was a thing. It was something that soldiers would join. It was like a brotherhood. It was like a like a club. They they did worship the the sun god or which a lot of other religions did back then so it was a pretty common thing there's not a lot of evidence left over from them there's not a lot uh, that we know about their customs that's why they're such a perfect group to use to uh to write this uh, extravagant sci-fi future for there's not a lot of scriptures or whatever so that's why it's interesting in the show that they're always talking about that uh, the mithraeans get their technology like the necromancer from from finding hidden messages in the scriptures from from Mithras. I, I thought it was a very fascinating way to take something in real life, adjust it appropriately for your show, and you can tell they definitely took some uh, inspiration from like the Crusades and uh, Christianity. I would say Crusades is a really solid way to look at it because the Mithraic cult was stamped out by Christianity. When Christianity came around, things like Mithraism fairly well disappeared. And even before Christianity, you know, a lot of that cult took place in caves. This show caves with theological paintings and interpretive things that are connected to soul, like the giant burning dice in the middle of the desert <laughs> and little prison cubes and so when you look at all these things going on with the idea of crusades 
it's almost like the Mithraics of the past also participated in the crusades of real history. And instead of Christianity being a powerful force there, uh, the Mithraic ones won. And so they got to take all that crusader energy and keep it throughout history. It is interesting how they've incorporated so much real uh, Mithraism into it. You know, you've got the Helodromus, which is a real rank that is mentioned in the show. It's the rank of Otho, the rapist priest guy. And you've got things like Romulus's tooth uh, that Holly finds in the ship. And she talks about the she-wolf, which is an actual Roman myth about the founding of Rome. And you just have all of this real history along with the very real Kepler 22B. And it's just fascinating how much of the show is grounded in the real world. So they get the second batch of kids, right? And they, they she gets the second batch of kids from the, from the spaceship, and they start getting sick too. They very well establish that the lander has a superior analyzation computer. And so they feed it the food that they've been giving the kids, and it says, hey, the pits of these are radioactive. So basically being around these, uh, the food they've been eating, being around the pits is what's been killing all these kids. And so they're like, oh, crap, now we can't eat this food. And then they need to start exploring around, and that's when they start finding the weird, skulky uh, alien creatures that they can kill and eat the meat off them, and they taste like pork. I guess my, my problem with this is at this point, they've been on the planet for over 12 years, right? And I get that you're raising, like, a huge group of kids. Like, that's ridiculous to start with that many kids. Any parent could tell you that even if you're an android and you don't need to rest and sleep, like, you should maybe have started with a half batch and then do another half batch later. Technically, like the... they did. Oh, okay, maybe that was their plan. Okay, no, fair, fair enough, fair enough. But anyway, my, my problem is is that you have all these kids and why wouldn't you at some point dedicate one of the parental figures for exploring or, or maybe when the kids get old enough, like, Hey, you two, you're 12. Now uh, you're going to group up or you're 10. Now you're going to group up and you're going to just explore South, find more food, like find more food sources and bring it back to camp. I, I just think that uh, the idea that they'd been eating space potatoes their whole lives and hadn't adventured around to find other stuff is a little hard for me to to suspend my disbelief for because because when you're when you're out there in the wilderness like that's your thing your thing is to find sustenance and obviously there's some kind of ecosystem because there's plants everywhere and and there's those creatures that appear that skulk around but think back through the show you never once see any insects there's no bugs in the show at all like i can't think of a single scene where there's a fly or a mosquito or and that's it's got to be intentional because everything in the show seems so intentional but it makes me wonder how this alien ecosystem works and i mean you would think that they would have established that like oh hey there's space pill bugs on kepler 22b so the kids have been you know, mashing them into pill bug paste for their space potatoes. Or, you know, I mean, you think that there'd be multiple nutrient sources and that that would be a very high priority for the Android parents is to find 
multiple nutrient sources for the children. Perhaps that comes down to a flaw in their programming where the only thing that they are instructed to do is to keep the caloric intake accurate. And so they provide the carbos and the kids eat it and they call it good. And they'd had a very set decision of we will only move towards the tropical zone as soon as the kids are grown. And so it was probably just a delay where time doesn't matter to them on the same level. I agree that the kids should have gone out when they were 10 because Pokemon proved to us that 10 year olds (laughs) are supposed to travel the world. But mother and father were actually super paranoid about letting the kids do anything because Tally went and fell down a hole. And so their overprotective got to protect the children mode kicked in. And once the arc showed up and mother went crazy necromancer, father spent most of the show with an identity crisis, not knowing his role. Am I a protector? Am I a provider? Am I anything and so his position is flawed he can't do anything now without mother correcting him or getting upset with him for his actions and mother won't go anywhere especially after the arc because she now has tempest and her baby to take care of and so you've got this weird isolated prison where they keep coming up with reasons not to go anywhere and the main motivator for going anywhere other than food would have been threats and that would be the skulky creatures that try and attack them which we don't encounter by my memory until after the arc explodes yeah and yeah, no, so it's after the second batch of kids comes that means that you know, those 10, 12 years that the androids are alone with batch one, they never had that threat. And that's weird in itself until you think about, you know, planetary cataclysmic events like a giant spaceship exploding. So you think it was the arc crashing that stirred those creatures? I do. Okay, interesting. See, when when Kayla and I were watching the show, our first theory was that they came from the Ark, like they were actually on board the Ark. But then it seemed less likely as the show went to establish that, no, they're critters that live on the planet. My money's on Ark explosion. Campion is is interesting because he's the only kid of Gen 1 that survives. So he's the only, like, pure atheist robot-grown child around and kicking, which that alone might say something about, about that whole concept. But as a character, he's basically nothing special, I'm sorry to say. Definitely has only child syndrome. I thought it was interesting that he uh, experimented with Faith after his siblings were all dead. That seemed to go away as soon as the Mithraic people showed up. Like, then he, he seemed to go more hardcore atheist at that point. I did not like Campion's rivalry with Paul. I, I know they were setting it up because they're, they're little boys and it makes sense. But it was just kind of like, come on, guys, you're so the same person. <laughs> just get over it and, uh, you know, you'll do great things together. Uh, but I feel like they're setting up a Campy and Paul rivalry for seasons down the road when one of them is going to be ruler of the atheists and the other is going to be ruler of the Mithraic. And we'll have some uh, Kingdom Thrones on Kepler 22B. 
Which was inevitable as soon as the prophecy was discussed in, what, episode one, where it was about the orphaned boy, and so Campion becomes suspected as being this prophet, and that's why the Mithraics want to take him, and then Paul ends up being some brilliant Mithraic architect, and so the faithful even doubt the translation of the scripture that, oh, maybe orphan was wrong. Maybe Paul's just that prophet. Maybe it doesn't need to be an orphan, not knowing that Paul is an orphan because his parents were murdered. And so you have them both built up as this prophet character. And so, of course, there has to be some headbutting in there. And the, the jealousy was weird. And I think that only child syndrome is a good way to put it because Campion got straight up jealous when Paul was smarter than him with the puzzle, accused him of cheating, tried to beat him up. And that's right after they had their little buddy adventure of discovering the uh, fungus in the uh, pits, which led to, I think, the most annoying part of Campion, that he is a very self-righteous person. He goes through the the meme version of vegans. You know, he literally has the cocky, Paul and I aren't eating the beast's meat. We're eating fungus, and the rest of you can eat fungus with us if you want to. Right. And so they 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 made him into a meme right there, and from, I think, then on, I really struggled with Campion because he didn't, become the prophet he didn't become the chosen one immediately and he just kind of existed as this what about campion for mother and then when all the other kids try to escape campion shows up magically in the right direction that they were headed with his sling ready to defend them come with me if you want to live you know like he's just this convenient plot character at that point tempest has a pretty uh, substantial story where she bonds with the android mother. She is pregnant and she was she was raped while she was in suspended animation. And so she doesn't want to have this baby. And mother, the android mother, is basically like programmed to, no, we need to preserve all life because we need to have all hands on deck, basically. The characters, they, they really grow to like each other through their combined coldness, I suppose. Tempest really seems to resonate with Mother because she's very uh, methodical and not touchy-feely. Tempest was very quick to become blasphemous compared to the other kids. As soon as Mother said, you know, you're atheists now, take off your pendants, give up mm. on it, Tempest jumped. And I think that it was Otho's fault. He raped her and she's pregnant and mm -hmm. she had this complete loss of faith and Mother became this safety she became this destination protector that valued her still something that tempest wasn't feeling she didn't she didn't value herself right it gave her something other than her faith to uh to focus on she struggled i mean she tried to commit suicide to get rid of the baby mother and her bonded over why suicide's bad and you even have a very fascinating uh comparison once mother becomes pregnant and doesn't want her baby because it's not something that she anticipated ever being able to do where her and tempest are now kind of in that same yeah. round and it's weird that in the last half of the 
of the show, we really don't hear about Tempest Baby anymore because uh, Mother's Baby takes takes priority a hundred percent. Well, it develops uh, much faster. I mean, when you're feeding it the blood of everything that you can find, and the blood of every android in the wrecked ship, and the blood of the creepy rapist helmet guy. I mean, you're this is how you get a flying snake baby. Yeah, I'm curious if her baby would have ever actually died or if it would have just grown slower if she wouldn't have given into that gluttonous devour everything yeah. cannibalistic vampire mode. Yeah, it was weird. She had like an episode or two where she was a vampire. So our other older kid in the group is Hunter and Hunter is the son of a senior cleric. And he talks about that a lot. He is very entitled um, he likes to say, you know, hey, I can't kill that creature for food. It'll make me impure. He's the one that keeps making everybody do prayer circle before dinner. He's the one that tries to convert Campion. Well, and he's also the older, the older child. So it's, it's more ingrained in, in his ways. Like he's definitely a product of his environment. And he's like, no, this is the functional way that, that we need to do this. Where, where the, uh, where one of the girls, uh, Holly, is very much that way. And, and Tempest, Tempest is really Hunter's opposite. Which would have been interesting to even have a flashback for her to see what she was like before the rape. Uh, I'm curious if she was always kind of a rebellious kid or if she used to be super devout. I hope that in the future we get a flashback for her. Um, but with Hunter... I don't feel like you need any flashbacks because all he is is that kind of aristocratic, high-born, I'm senior cleric, I'm oldest, you'll listen to me, it's in the scriptures, and he's a very predictable character up until he reprograms father. I thought that came out of nowhere. He's the one that got father shot. And all of a sudden, he's standing around going, are you still in there, Pops? You know, and he's trying to fix him, and he's excited that father's back. Yeah. Um, I really liked that dynamic a lot. Because, like I said, uh, Hunter comes in, and he's, he's the older kid. He's the, yeah, like you said, he's the, he's the kid with the authoritative, family like he's he's the distinguished one and you know tempest is is the fallen one and the show just does such a great job of like rotating the characters through the hero and the villain seat because from hunter's point of view father and mother are these evil people who they arguably are who killed all their people and crashed their ship and so he's trying to to play the long game and so father is his enemy but it's after Marcus's led Mithraeans come and liberate the children that Hunter starts to go, gosh, you know, maybe mother and father had something there. There was a warmth about that culture that doesn't exist in the, in, in my culture. And, and so that's when I think he starts thinking like, yeah, are you still in there, Pops? Like he starts having regrets about it because he, he realizes the humanity in the android. I loved how they spread out the revelation of uh, what father was Morse coding with his finger. Uh, I love how they spread out the revelation of what it translated to and what it was for over a couple episodes. I thought it made it feel more organic. Asterix, I thought it was weird that they're still using Morse, Morse code like in the perceivably distant future. 
uh, yeah, I really like that whole sequence, but it might just be because I really liked the character of Father so much that it's like, yeah, anything, like just write him back in. I don't care. <laughs> he gets reconstituted. I was devastated when they killed Father again. Every time, so, every time. I was very happy that he came back, and I thought that the Morse code twitch was his trigger finger that he was still trying to kill all the <laughs> soldiers he was walking totally. around pouring their cup like click 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 shooting them and then it ended up being morse code is like okay i get it and then when it was some pious message about soul it was like oh, that's a little weird and then hunter cracking the code that was cool i liked that and i can totally see where you're coming from on realizing that mother and father were warmer and we do have an interesting fall for Hunter. They find out that Mother's pregnant. Him and Holly get really excited about writing in the scriptures about the baby and how they think it's from Saul. Saul meant for them to write this. And when they're flying to the hole that Mother, for some reason, thinks is the safest place to have the baby, even though it's crawling with critters, and even Paul, the most recent voice-hearing prophet, says... They can't hurt us. It's Soul's baby. Nothing can hurt us. Hunter, the previously most devout of all the kids, goes, yeah, he's right. But let's land somewhere else. You know, like, so we we actually see Hunter doubting Soul for the first time, which was interesting. No, the characters all go through very interesting arcs like that. Well, you can take any character and go with uh, where their faith starts and where their faith ends. Every character has a, a faith arc. You take Marcus, and he's a great one to go with because he starts out uh, the atheist character we all know. He starts hearing voices. He becomes their leader. He really falls deep into it for some reason. Maybe it's the voices corrupting him. Maybe he just really longed for that kind of belonging and that kind of authority. I'm not really sure, but he becomes super devout by the end of it. He's the most Mithraic of the Mithraic. Uh, where you take uh, Mother, and she starts out same, very similar, very similar arc to him, where she's just, she's a calculating computer who's on a mission, and she's going to achieve her mission. And through the deaths of her children, and through the failure of her mission, and, and the the stretches she has to make in her journey, she really comes to uh, to have faith in her creator, that her creator sent her on a mission for a reason and that she has to do right by her creator and her creator's mission. And uh, it's, it's very fascinating to me. Uh, father even drops a line, mother, you sound like a believer. And, and I loved that line so much. Every character in this show has a, a faith arc. Hunter and Tempest and that second batch of kids, uh, they are going from having their faith in their culture and in Saul to having faith in the family unit instead, like having faith like in tribalism. And then a play on words here, we're talking faith. We also get faithful in regards to relationships where... You have Marcus who gets upset when he thinks that Sue is no longer faithful to Sol and walks her in a silo. He's upset that his wife would turn her back on God, even though they originally, neither of them were God people. And so the warped belief of faithfulness there, and we get faithfulness as an issue between mother and father when 
mother decides to go and become a 3D printer for her creator communing in a virtual space moment. And so father becomes literally jealous that his android mother counterpart, not wife, was unfaithful to him, that she had relations with their creator on the level of father went and stormed off and contemplated divorce. You know, he was trying to figure out how to coexist with mother, even though she made him so angry. And he comes up with, oh, I'm just going to delete my memories so that I can continue being useful to the children. But then he gets really happy when he can, you know, commit suicide with her to kill the baby of the guy that she cheated with. Because, you know, that's just how all good parenting works. I thought it was very interesting that father even had feelings of jealousy as far as mother goes. Basically perturbed that uh, it wasn't his snake baby too. <laughs> so... <laughs> But but yeah, he goes through this like, gosh, how am I how am I even useful? What's my function in the family unit? And, and through all this stuff that you'd expect through a regular relationship. But it's just very interesting because it's implied that that's not really part of their programming. It's just how he feels that it should be. Definitely interesting throughout the show to watch the androids become more human. Which has to be some form of exposure to humans and a not completely robotic programming. And so I wonder how much of it comes from the fact that the androids are literally powered by things like a human heart. Yeah, and the show does a great job of exploring, like, where's the line on uh, creation and invention? Where's the line on living and uh, uh, artificial? It, the show does a great job of uh, tiptoeing those lines and just prodding those questions. In the finale, there's this reveal that they've been being watched the whole time by this blue alien guy. Uh, they'd set him up earlier in the show where we'd we'd seen his hideout and and we'd seen him flee and like leap up a wall or something, and and you kind of forget about him because they never mention him again. But they give this reveal that he's been watching them the whole time. And he seems to be somewhat involved with, like, the cave paintings that show up, as well as these weird, like, metal plates that have uh, some kind of data in them that are computerized, or they seem to be. But Which all these other... tarot cards. Right. But all of his... But all of his... Uh, everything else we see is very non-tech. So that confuses me a bit. But for some reason, after they kill him, He's got a uh, a Neanderthal skull in his bag, right? And and <laughs> firstly, that seems like a very strange thing to be packing around. Uh, but uh, father takes a chunk off it and gives it a nibble and says that the isotopes in it match Kepler-22b. So what they seem to be insinuating is that Neanderthals existed as a species on Kepler-22b and on Earth at the same time. There's room to doubt if those were even the same bandaged people. Because when you watch this one that they killed hobble around, 
the dexterity's not there from the one okay, that yeah. ninja bounced out of the skull. So I wonder how many of those people there actually are. And you have the whole conversation of de-evolved, where you had humans that became Neanderthals that became the creatures on the planet, which means that the kids have been eating humans de-evolved right humans. yeah or they've been eating a, a yeah human relative or human uh, ancestor i i don't know they did because they definitely used the word de-evolve it's definitely what she said in the show i take issue with that and i mean it's sci-fi and i'm sure they'll have some sci-fi way to explain it but that's not how evolution works evolution doesn't super mario brothers you back to a different re- relative that that's not how we we weren't once Neanderthals. We've always been modern humans. It's just at some point uh, uh, we split off from that group. There there was there was a baby at one point that wasn't Neanderthal that uh, that was modern human. Uh, the species have related species, but but they continue to branch forward. I guess is my issue with it. So you could go, Neanderthals were here at the same time, and this creature that's here is a common ancestor descendant that that was a humanoid uh, ancestor that was in the genus Homo and, and has evolved over time into those uh, creepy crawly critters uh, that appear randomly uh, partway through the first season that, that is their food source. And... and from the minute they said that those creatures tasted like pork, I had a pretty good feeling that it was going to be some kind of human thing. I thought that it was going to be the children that had died and they like came back as those things somehow or something. That's what I thought it was going to build to, but it, but it didn't. Ridley Scott's thing is ancient astronaut theory. The thought that life on Earth came here because of ancient astronauts. So it makes a lot of sense that he'd be going that way with things. I just, I, uh, I take issue with the de-evolution angle unless they're going to explain their sci-fi. Because uh, that's not how natural selection works. Then where does this de-evolution come in? Is it actually that this specific planet was bad or what you know we and that's why i said earlier in it that really the finale gave us more questions than it gave us answers because they threw that at us in what the last 20 minutes yeah and uh gosh you haven't even talked about the flying snake baby yet oh the flying snake baby made a lot more sense than that (laughs) i disagree I don't know. The flying snake baby makes perfect sense when you look at it from completely bull. When you look at it from a creative standpoint. So (laughs) we're led to believe that the snake baby came from internet sex. Uh, (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, with the uh, the Futurama internet uh, Link up machine, which plays a way more vital role in the show than you would ever figure. And I, yeah, she has that interaction with her creator where they're definitely screwing, and then it's like they definitely establish that sh- the android woman becomes pregnant because of that uh, virtual reality sexual encounter. They definitely concretely establish that. 
my question is, is that they also firmly established that the, that she is made from Mithraean technology that the Mithraeans don't fully understand. And they also firmly established that it was the plan of the Mithraeans to corner her by manipulating the programming of that pod into a loop so that she would be vulnerable and they could attack her, right? So is the snake baby the result of programming that was already there with her? Is it from programming that was already within the pod from the scriptures? Or is it programming that the Mithraean hacker who is trying to trap her in there programmed? Like, where does the snake baby come from? Which one of those things? There's actually another option. Yeah, what's that? We have a sequence where someone approaches the pod and accesses it that is an unknown user and oh we, we see do one of the bandaged people kind of skulking up to her so did one of the natives of this planet one of the indigenous people that's you know somehow mm. connected to neanderthal skulls <laughs> somehow able to put a snake baby inside her and there's actually <laughs> justification for this and i don't think it's there's a, tempest... a sound bite for you <laughs> and, and i don't think that it's a tempest rape scene i think that if you follow that thread it's got to be something cultish because one of mother's recurring visions is the robed people around the prison D20 that has the helm that's spitting out the milk, the milk that is very much so android blood. And when Mother finds the helmet, there is an android head inside of it. It's the exact same mesh patterns as her chest when Campion was modifying her instructions. And so that means that these robed people on Kepler 22b had an android that was spitting out blood the same way mother did. And this mask has a big old hole, big enough for a snake thingy to come out of it. So that means that the cult on this planet grows these snake things. So are they deities to these people or does the snake thing control everybody's minds because, you know, it's some super powered alien space lizard Uh and it's able to make them make it. And are the Mithraic scriptures coming from Kepler-22b to Earth, and that's what they're translating, and that's how they created the Necromancer, because the one in the cube uh, Mm -hmm. on Kepler was actually a Necromancer as well, and so they had to send the instructions to another civilization to create another one, to send it back to them to create a new god. That could be, maybe maybe that's what it is, I... I had forgotten that that a local had effed with the pod. Originally, I, I had thought that that was Tally, who was skulking around. But later, it's established that it's possibly that blue guy. We'll be very curious to see how that plays out. I definitely was expecting some kind of horrible monster baby just because it's a Ridley Scott project. Uh, I was hoping it would just be a regular baby with superpowers. <laughs> but no. <laughs> well, it is a regular baby with superpowers. It's a regular snake baby that's half android, <laughs> and it gained the necromancer ability of flight. That's one thing um, that they're on record confirming was that it gained its ability to fly from mother. Right. 
yeah and then there's that whole sequence where uh where she's gonna kill it and he she's just dropping the hole like father has died so many times and he just promised that boy that he wasn't gonna leave him again and and he's like okay mother hey i hey you're gonna kill yourself let me come too uh, i'll help and then they they fly their pod down in the hole that whole sequence was was pretty cool but why did they both have to go down there uh i thought it was wild that they they reveal that the holes go all the way down to the core of the planet to the molten core of the planet which makes sense why they would feel heat coming off of those holes and everything i thought it was crazy that that what seems to have happened is mother father and the snake baby flew through the planet's core and came out the other side all gungan style they like crashed over there so now they're on the other side of the planet and i I would guess that their story in season two will be about finding each other and avoiding the snake baby perhaps looked like they crashed fairly close to each other so i'm sure that their story will be together in the tropical zone and everybody else's story will be on the other side. And so I am looking forward to learning more about that tropical zone and why that electromagnetic field prevented the Ark from landing <laughs> over there. Yeah, my theory is that there's an advanced civilization living there already. The going through the core, one of my thoughts was, okay, here they go. They're going down. Why'd they have to go together? Okay, father justified it. He said, you're too weak to pilot the ship. I need to do it for you. And mother's concerned that she can't just throw it or jump in herself because if she lets go, the thing can fly and it can get back out onto the side and eat Campion. So it's like, okay, I get why she needs to steal their only ship. And I get why father's going to be the martyr and throw himself down. But they're going down this hole and father and her have this cute bonding. We're dying together moment. And then they shut down and then they come to again and the ship's fine. And so I was really bothered. It's like, okay, so why did, why did they shut down? This ship has to be good enough to go through like atmospheres, which means it needs to have some kind of heat resistance and father bounced back really quick. So that just means that this Android has a bad heat sink. (laughs) Oh, that could be. Right, or or maybe they were just trying to spare themselves the pain. I don't know. Yeah, that uh, that whole sequence was very bizarre. The whole ending actually was pretty bizarre. Like it felt like they didn't give themselves proper time for the finale, and then they just started opening questions. Sue's been shot. Uh, uh, little boy. Uh, little Paul. Paul's hearing voices. Uh, Paul's the new Marcus. Marcus is eating eyes. Marcus is tripping out on android eyes. What was the point of the eye, Lucius? It didn't kill him. Yeah, what was the point of the eye, Lucius? Were you hoping he'd choke on it? Like, he'll choke. It'll melt his throat. All I can figure is that it was a symbolic gesture from Lucius to feed him the necromancer eyes. And all I can figure is that it's a setup so that he can poop it out later and she can get it back. Oh, see, I was picturing it being uh, the other way, that Marcus was going to gain some kind of necromancer power, you know. Oh, okay, okay. Eat it and become more powerful. So, Chris, what's something that you really liked about this show? We're talking a specific moment or a scene. What stuck with you? The snake baby. It was my absolute favorite part. I'm kidding. No, uh, uh, father, father rules. Uh, father was the greatest thing about the show. Sorry if I stole that from you, uh, because I think we're both on the same page there. But every scene, even when father was 
taking his turn in the villain chair. Every time Father's on screen, I'm having a good time. He's great. Uh, how about you? What was something that you that you liked from the show? One of your big takeaways? I really liked Marcus's descent into madness. We totally. had a literal Shadow Link fight scene where he fought himself with perfect choreography. You know, yeah, and he, and moves and he everything. He won also, or, and or lost. I mean, <laughs> exactly. It was Shadow Link, <laughs> and then after he gets back to base and sleeps, he wakes up and carves his face off in his dream. In the oh, most that was so uncomfortable. Oh, that was uncomfortable. I have a really strong stomach. Most things don't phase me, but I got to admit, watching that, my wife sitting next to me. Both of us just kind of had that cringe of, oh, this is going on a while. And so I think that as far as acting and directing goes, that has to be up there in one of the greatest portrayals of plummeting into madness of all time. No, I definitely bought the madness. And yeah, that particular scene where he's carving off his fake face. Uh, we like to eat dinner when we watch this show after we put the kids to bed. So I get my nice dinner all served up and we're sitting there in front of the TV and get the show rolling. And then he starts carving off his face and we both just like set our dishes back on the coffee table. And we're like, well, I'll need a minute. <laughs> a more lighthearted, happy thing that I really liked was one line from Paul towards the end when he puts Mouse down on the ground and he says, stretch your legs, do some pooping. <laughs> yeah <laughs> opposite direction let's talk negative what did you not like let's see here i didn't like the snake baby I, that it, uh, i knew it was gonna be some weird alien thing because it's a ridley scott movie or a ridley scott uh involved creative process thing i i knew it was gonna be something horrible but i didn't like the the snake baby uh mother i had issues with the character of mother uh every character does take a turn being the villain I just find Mother to be dangerous. She's probably the most dangerous character in the show. And so uh, I think it's just because she's dangerous. I don't really care for her character. The big low point for me in the show is just I would have appreciated more details on the hunter gathering. I mean, I understand that that would probably be boring, but that was one of the things I latched onto from the first episode is the whole like frontiersman angle. So hell, I would have even enjoyed it if they had maybe a bit where they teach the kids to read and write, because we didn't see that at all either. Maybe they don't, maybe they don't read and write, but I would have loved to see a bit where maybe father and campion and another kid who's alive are doing some Lewis and Clarking around the area. You know, maybe they've built a raft and they're exploring the river and they're uh, uh, taking uh, flower and plant samples and writing down stuff about them. Like I would have loved a sequence in that or, or a sequence like that. And, uh, with how the show does have some slower, arguably filler episodes in like the last, uh, the beginning of the last third of it, maybe the end of the second uh, bit of it, there's plenty of room in the show for some boring exploring frontiersman crap. And I think it would have, uh, it would have knocked the realism up a notch from a show that for its premise already comes with quite a bit of realism. How about you, Corey? What's something that, uh, that you didn't like? about the first season how often they killed father <laughs> leave father alone we like father 
I'm holding a grudge on that one. Like it, it, my my dislike is that simple. <laughs> just just killing father. And they toyed with our hearts. They did it like so many times. And that's the part that got to me. Like killing a guy once, that's dramatic, that's effective. But at some point, you you just got to leave the poor guy alone. The first time they that they killed father when when mother killed father. We finished the episode and I told Kayla, I was like, I, I don't know if I want to watch it anymore. I don't know if I care about it if father's not in it. <laughs> and that was 20 minutes into episode one. <laughs> <laughs> totally. It's like, oh, if father's not going to be in it. I don't know. So I was so glad when they brought him back. It's like, yes, the search for Spock. <laughs> On that same interview that I talked about earlier, they they made fun of how often father died and they even asked that at the end of it that the creators um specifically they're talking to Aaron Guzikowski um they asked him will you just put together a highlight reel of all the times you kill father once the show's over and it's like i don't want that <laughs> Yeah, please don't. Like, he's not Kenny. He pretty much is Kenny. I mean, if he's going to adopt a fake name, mother adopted a fake name, I feel like his is going to have to be Kenny. What was the name that mother adopted? It was when the Mithraic soldiers showed up in the very end of episode one. And she's, don't tell them I'm an android. And you're led to believe that the Mithraics are going to have, oh, they don't like androids. But then you find out that they've got a bunch of them and that necromancers are theirs. And so it's like, well, why did she not want them to know that she was an android? Like, I I think she could. I think she was trying to fake them that they were just people that lived there and that they should just go away. Like, oh, we're just people. We live here. Go away. Yeah, I so, thought it was going to be tied into the atheists, though. It was going to be something like, oh, only atheists have soulless robots. But So, oh, hey, nope. at, at the very end of the show, the very last scene, we see Marcus fumbling through the woods, uh, and then he stumbles onto a base camp for people in uh, in, in black clothes with, with combat gear, and then the camera pans up to show us some big spaceship hovering there above the forest. Do you think that's the atheists coming from Earth? Is that like another ship? Or do you think that that's something else? Confirmed to be atheist army. Oh, okay. Okay, so the atheists also sent... So why the heck did those other two impersonate... I guess to, you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket? So my theory on that is this is a radical cell of atheists... And so it was one of those deep, dark secrets that not everybody was privy to. And so that proves that Caleb and Mary were low-ranking nothings. And so they were like the peasant class of atheists that wanted to survive. Gotcha. So that was because, their solution. But then we also have this awkward conversation with Campion Surgeon, the the hacker corruption guy, that declared, I'm pretty sure it was him that declared, that the atheists didn't have the technology to build an Ark. And when you look at the ships, they're very different. At first I thought that it was the atheists got a hold of an Ark and killed everybody and took it over, you know, pirate style. But they are very different, and I can't imagine that the Mithraic people would 
like non-uniform ships. Overall, with Raised by Wolves, I really enjoyed it. I was definitely entertained the whole show, even with the more fillery episodes where nothing of real consequence transpired. I was always glued to the TV and interested in and the survival of, of all the characters. I really enjoyed the carousel of characters taking turns being antagonist and protagonist. I, I found that to be super fresh. Overall, I really, really enjoyed the show, and I would recommend checking it out. And it was fantastic with how much real-world detail they've incorporated. I also just loved that it's called Raised by Wolves. Once you've finished the whole show, you can sit back and wonder about it. It just makes sense. These kids were raised by mother. Look at mother. Analyzer. Yeah, it's perfect. It's perfect. It's perfect. It really is. And when you have things like the She-Wolf being referenced, it's just even better. So overall, this was a very enjoyable show. And... Thank you, Chris, for encouraging me to watch it. I probably never would have if it wasn't for this podcast. And thank you to all of you listeners that stuck around through this conversation. This was a blast talking about it. It was the first time that Chris and I actually talked about this show together because he wanted to avoid spoiling anything for me because he knows how much I hate spoilers. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as we did. We hope you enjoyed the show, um, and we hope you will enjoy the show if for some reason you listened to this without watching the show. Anyways, I really look forward to our next episode. We'll catch you next time. Next time, we're going to be talking about The Martian. Very excited to be talking about it. It's one of my favorite movies. We're just feeling the uh, Ridley Scott vibes, and so we're going to continue on to The Martian. Remember, you can follow Bored and Nerdy on Instagram and YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcast. Please like, subscribe, and comment. Let us know what you want to hear about. We definitely ran into that issue for this episode, where we sat back and wondered, hey, what should we talk about next? And you know what would be really convenient? If you guys just sent us an email, then we wouldn't have to make up our mind on things. That would be really cool. Yeah, or you could put in a comment, you know, email, comment. Uh, we are borednnerdy at gmail.com. You can comment on us on YouTube. We'd love to hear from you. We hope you're a little less bored and a little more nerdy.